welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Life is worth living. Life is worth living. That no matter what season we find ourselves in, that life is so, so worth living. And we're going to begin a new series together called Life Worth Living. Over the course of the next few months, uh, we're going to journey identity together and what makes life worth living. We're going to journey through a book of the Bible. We're going to be in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians together. And I sat down with Jason Torrance over coffee last week. I'm going to set my timer because the Browns play today. Did you guys know that? This year, should we say it? Can we say that this year is, who watched, who watched Hard Knocks on HBO? Who watched the show on the Browns? Yeah. I don't know. There's some strange vibes going around these parts of town. We may just surprise some people this year. I, um... We were at a wedding, and I, you know, I was like, I, I talked to a friend of mine about the Browns, and I said, you know, we might, we might win like six to eight games this year, and he just kind of smirked. You know, that kind of like, yeah, right, you're Cleveland. And I was like, no, for real, we're gonna, I think we're going to be good this year. And he goes, Evan, in what other arena of life is six out of 12 like doing really well. Like if you get six out of 12 on a test, you flunked it. <laughs> and I said, hey, we're Cleveland. We won zero games last year. Six would be like the favor of God resting over the entire football team. Okay, so the timer set. Where was I? Life is worth living. Life is worth living. Back, okay, out of football. Um, so we're going to be in Ephesians together if you wanted to turn or swipe there with me. And Jason, Torrance, and I, and a few others will be speaking through the book of Ephesians. If you wanted to complement that, the book of Ephesians, the talks on Sunday with reading through the book as we move through the series, it would complement really well. You would find yourself strengthened. There's something powerful when a group of people decide to journey a passage of scripture together. It's really powerful. And so I'm really excited and looking forward to seeing what God will do. Um, and today, we're going to talk about being in Christ being in Jesus. Paul uses this phrase in the New Testament a gajillion times, that you are in Christ. If you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, the Son of God, that he is God come, Jesus is God come down to earth to show that he's like us. He put on skin and bones. He put on flesh and bones to show that God is like us then you are in Christ. And we're going to get at that little phrase today, what it means to be in Christ. Because it doesn't mean like that the coffee mugs are in the cupboard. It doesn't mean that like the tools are in the toolbox. But we're going to find that it means something a little bit different. And I felt that this week, 
um, we were to read the entire first chapter together. And I know this is like one of Sarah's pet peeves. Preachers who give long passages of scripture at a time. But today is all Ephesians 1. And you don't have to do anything. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message version. It's like everyday language of Ephesians 1. And so you don't have to do anything. You don't have to like try hard. You just receive in this. If you had your Bible, you could follow along if you wanted to, but you really don't have to. This is Ephesians 1. I, Paul, am under God's plan as an apostle, a special agent of Christ Jesus, writing to you faithful believers in the city of Ephesus. I greet you with the grace and peace poured into our lives by God our Father and our Master, Jesus Christ. How blessed is God and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ. And he takes us to the high places of blessing with him. Long before he laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind. Had settled on us as the focus of his love. To be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning all of this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, were a free people. Free of penalties and punishments that have been chalked up by all of our misdeeds. And not just barely free either. Abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need. Letting us in on the plans he took such great delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ. The long range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eyes on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he's working out in everything and everyone. It is in Christ that you Once you heard the truth and believed this message of your salvation, found yourselves home free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. The signet, the symbol from God is the first installment on what's coming. A reminder, a down payment that will get everything God has planned for us. A praising and glorious life. That's why when I heard of the solid trust you have in the Master Jesus and your outpouring of love to all the followers of Jesus, I couldn't stop thanking God for you. Every time I prayed, I'd think of you and give thanks. But I do more than thank. I ask. I ask the God of our master, Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning and knowing him personally, your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what he's calling you to do. Grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for his followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength. All this energy issues from Christ. 
God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments, no name, no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all. He has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, it's not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's own body in which he speaks and acts by which he fills everything with his presence. Amen. Come on, you guys. Wow. Wow. A life worth living. A life worth living is found in him. A life worth living is found in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, we were given grace before the world was created. In Christ Jesus, we were chosen by God before the foundations of the earth. In Christ Jesus, we're loved by God with an inseparable love. In Christ Jesus, you were redeemed and forgiven of all your sins. In Christ Jesus, you're justified. There's no, no one's keeping score. You're justified. All the debts are paid in Christ Jesus before God and the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus is yours. You are the life worth living. In Christ Jesus, you become what Paul says, a new creature When you find Jesus, when Jesus finds you, you're not just turning over a new life. You're a new person. You're a new life that's worth living. Yeah, 164 times in the letters from Paul alone, 164 times in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You're in Christ. What does that mean? Well, if you're reading along in your Bible, and if you don't have one, we'd love for you to have one. We have Bibles at either side of the stage. We love the Bible at Vineyard Cleveland. We believe we are in Christ. We're in his word as we look at the Bible together. But if you're reading along in Ephesians, you'll see that Paul says, you, you have everything you need in Christ. Every, Paul says, every spiritual blessing. Now, if you have everything, how much more is there for you to get? It's not a trick question. If someone comes up to you and says, I'm giving you everything that I have. Everything that I have belongs to you. How much more is left for them to give you? How much more do they have? Another way to ask this is, how can you exhaust an inexhaustible resource? And Paul says that you have everything you need, every spiritual blessing, everything that you need to live a worthy life is already in your life, in the person of Jesus. Doesn't this just destroy poverty mentality? That I have what I need 
as long as I have, or another way to say it is as long as I have you, Jesus, as long as I have you, you can take all the money from me. You can take away my family. You can take away my friends. You can take away my job. Just give me Jesus. Jesus is all that I need. I have everything that I need. That's a powerful statement to advertising in America, isn't, isn't it? No thanks. I don't need that shiny car. I have all that I need in Jesus. See, then there's nothing that you can sell me because I have everything that I need in Jesus. I don't need a bigger house. I don't need a better wife. I don't need a better family. I don't need better kids. I don't want shiny, happy Instagram kids. I have everything that I need in Jesus Christ. There's not one thing that you could set before me that's better than the hope that I've received in Jesus Christ. In him. In him. In Christ. Wholeness. Complete. Total. Any. All. All means all. All spiritual blessings. And I wonder how often we stop to think about our lives, our journeys in that way. That we have all that we need. You know, Paul is really big on identity and Ephesians and grace and what grace means. And typically in America, these sort of religious words like holy, sin, forgiveness, redeemed, grace, love, they're losing their meaning. Jeff, my friend Jeff and I are reading this book um, called Learning to Speak God from Scratch. I'd highly recommend it. It's by an author named Jonathan Merritt. And he's talking about the disappearance of religious words from culture. And he, what he's finding out is that people in general in America are not having spiritual conversations at all. For a varied number of reasons. It's just not on people's radar to have talks with one another. Whether it's because the political environment is so bullying and the bully pulpit is, is in in effect, in politics, in our society, or whether it's because people believe that religion is, is for me, I don't want to convert anybody else, and so it's for me, I don't want to talk about this. People are not having spiritual conversations. If you are having spiritual conversations with anybody, you are seen as a dinosaur, or you're in the minority of people in America. And so Merritt's book talks about how we reintroduce a spiritual vocabulary in a way that's safe, that creates space rather than deconstructs space, where people can actually hear one another, and it's not us versus them in any regard. Really wonderful book. But what we mean by grace, what we mean Typically, we say when we talk about grace, we talk about receiving something that we don't deserve or unmerited, we've done nothing on our own, unmerited favor. And typically in America, though, when we say that, what we mean is I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And you may, you may have heard this before sometimes in conversation and people will be falsely humble and they'll say, I'm just a sinner Saved by grace, that's it. I'm just a beggar uh, telling other beggars where to find bread. Have you heard that one? 
That's another cop out. That's not who you are. That's bad theology. That's bad thinking about who the Father is. You're not just a beggar who God decided to throw a bone to. That's not who you are. You're not just a sinner saved by grace. That's not who you are. In the scriptures that we all claim to read and to submit our lives before, we're told that we are sons and daughters of God. The love of God lavished on us in inexhaustible measure. See, we focus on the unmerited and not the favor. But there is a favor on your life in Christ as a son or a daughter that you cannot find anywhere else on the face of the earth. You are a son. You are chosen. You, you're favored by God. You are cherished. You're adored by God. God isn't mad at you. God is for you. You're not just a beggar. You're not just a sinner saved by grace. Because God doesn't see you like that. We stop again. We say, I'm a son or a daughter. I get it. No, no. You don't get it. You don't get it. And the reason you don't get it is because when you think of father, all you think about is your earthly father or your earthly mother. And you're like, well, God is father. God leaves then. That's what God does because my father left me. God is domineering because my father used to abuse me or my mother was domineering of me. So that's how God is. Did you know that? Did you know the way that you experience your mom and dad is the way that you view God? And so you don't get it. We don't get it. We don't get it. When we, when we say God is Father, what we mean is he's, like, he's, he's not like any other father that you've known. He's not like any other mother that you've known. Ever. Ever. He's so safe. He's the Father that will never leave you or forsake you. He's the only person who will never let you down, ever. People will let you down. Fathers will let you down. Mothers will let you down. Brothers will let you down. Sisters will let you down. Friends will let you down. God will never let you down, ever. He's a father unlike any other we've known. A life worth living is found in Christ. In Christ. A life worth living is filled with glory. A life worth living is filled with glory. What does that mean? We hear this phrase from Paul throughout all of Ephesians 1 that we're called to be a praise of his glory. Not to do things for the praise of his glory. You know, this is another common misconception in the church in America. We, we do things in order to gain favor. We do things to make God's name great. Have you heard that one before? Oh, really? Enlighten me. If God is the greatest, if God is the greatest ever, 
What, you're, oh, you, you're the one? You're making him more famous? You could do that? That's amazing of you. Good on you. Good luck with that, <laughs> of making God more famous. That's a very high opinion of yourself. <laughs> if you're the one that's going to make God famous, do you see how ridiculous that is? There's nothing that you could do to make God more glorious. No, you're called to be a praise of his glory, not to do things to make his name more glorious. What does that mean to be a praise of his glory? That phrase. There's this woman in the church. Her name was Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. She was a mystic. She was a contemplative. Long time ago. And she would refer to herself as, as Paul writes in Ephesians. She would call herself a praise of his glory. What is your name? Elizabeth? No, I'm a praise of his glory. <laughs> She's called to be a praise of his glory. And she said this about what that phrase means. She said, a praise of glory is a soul of silence that remains like a lyre or a guitar like a guitar, under the mysterious touch of the Holy Spirit, so that he may draw from it divine harmonies. It knows, the soul knows, that suffering is a a string that produces still more beautiful sounds. So it loves to see this string on the guitar plucked, that it may more delightfully move the heart of God. How beautiful is that? Being a praise of his glory includes suffering as well. When we live in him, in Christ, when we behold Jesus, when we push aside all of the religious baggage that's in our lives, all of the hang-ups, and we simply stare at the person of Jesus. We simply get a clean shot at like who he is and what he did and what he's doing on the earth right now. When we get a clean shot at the person of Jesus, when we just behold, we become a praise of his glory. We become, do you know that glory is transformative? You cannot get around Jesus or Jesus' people And walk away unchanged. It's impossible. When God comes, when God really comes, it's not just doing church. You're not just part of a country club. But when you're really in, when you're really connected, when you're really plugged into the Holy Spirit of God, you cannot walk away from that unchanged. No one's getting out alive. Listen, in Exodus 34, when Moses went up the hill, when he went up Mount Zion to meet with God, to receive the Ten Commandments, he says to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. And what does God do? He says, I'll show you my goodness. That's really good. We want glory. He says, I'm going to show you how kind I am. I'm going to show you my goodness. Anyway, the spirit, he said, God says, you're going to have to turn away because no one can look at God and live. I mean, actually look at him and live. 
And so Moses turns his face away and, and God flashes the hindquarters in front of him. It's in there. It's in your book. The same one. Yes, God did that. God mooned Moses. Is that sacrilegious to say? It's in the book. God passes before Moses. And then Moses receives the law, the Torah, the Jews call it. The law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Gets it from Jesus and comes down with the tablets. Remember, Charlton Heston, the NRA, and the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and, he, and he reads the law to the people. As Moses comes down off of the hill, there's no way I'm going to finish this in 30 seconds. My timer. When Moses comes down from meeting with God, his face is shining. His face is shining. He's like a light bulb. He's lit up. Can you imagine? And so... When he comes down, everyone's like, Moses, your face is shining. I can't (laughs) look at you right now. And so Moses covers his face with a veil. And then he goes back up on the mountain to get more. And when he goes up on the mountain, he lifts the veil up and he sees God. You cannot come into contact with God and be unaffected by him. In a similar way, when Jesus hits the scene and Jesus comes to earth, there's this amazing story about Jesus that he's with his disciples and he says, you, 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 James, Peter, John, you come with me. We're going up the mountain and they go up the mountain and there we're told that Jesus's face starts to change. It's called the transfiguration. He starts to change. And Eugene Peterson in the message says that something like sunlight, something like sunlight begins to pour from his face. And Peter's freaking out. And he says something stupid. He's just like, uh, do, you, do you want us to set up some, some statues for you? Do you want us to like memorialize? I don't know what to do. Your face is shiny. It's good for us to be, it's good for, this is good. This is really good. Peter's crazy. It's real good right now. We're we're up here with you. And your face is shiny. And there's something, when the glory of God comes, that changes us. This word countenance, do you know this word? May his face, this is like the Hebrew blessing that his face would shine upon you. To be a praise of his glory is to reflect something of who God is. We're to be the shiny face people. <laughs> Not shiny happy people, like filter on Facebook, filter on Instagram, Shiny, happy, that's not who we're supposed to be. But people of substance, people who are safe, 
People who reflect who God really is because people are dying to know who he really is. This word countenance, that his countenance would turn and shine towards you, it's, a, it's an old Latin word. And there's some like old Spanish mixed in there. Countenance. Do you know what it means? When people would say this word when it first started, when people first started to use this word countenance, it means container. Countenance, container. Your face, a contain. Your face is a contain. Something like sunlight pouring from your face. Do you see? Is this starting to come into view now? Your face as a container. Your, have you heard the? Fr- your eyes are a window to the soul. Sort of language. Containing, overflowing. With the goodness of God in your eyes. Have you ever come into contact with someone whose countenance is spilling over with kindness? There's an electricity in their eyes. When you meet with them, you're like, dang, what is going on in their lives? I've got, they're not on any type of drug that I know of. Like, they're just on fire, like you feel like if you like touch their shoulder, you'd like, you'd like, ah, man, what is unfolding in their journey? And you start to like want that. You're like, what is that? I got to get around the, we're called to be the people who are just lit up inside and reflecting God's glory to the world, to people. That's what it means when we behold Jesus, when we actually get Jesus, not, not come to church more, not, not care about other people more, but simply behold Jesus, we become a praise of his glory. And finally, life worth living has Christ at the center. There's this huge, there's this huge emphasis at the end of the chapter that we just read of Christ being at the center, of Christ being all things, all things, this, all, of, all of these little phrases are in Christ, in him. Every spiritual blessing, all of them, everything brought together, he's going to gather everything in heaven and earth. All things submitted to him, we read. Everything's under his authority. And then he's above all things in the church as well. All things in Christ. Christ is at the center. Jesus is at the center. I love this part. This is the best part. I've saved the best for last. I love when Paul says that the world is peripheral to the church. The church is not peripheral to the world. Peripheral meaning on the margins. And typically we think about church, the people. Well, we got to get past that church is not a building we go to. And once we've gotten past that, we think about the church is not where, like think about it. If you want to see where the greatest art is being created do you go to, do you think about the church in society? No, you don't. You think about, well, there's great art coming out of 
Los Angeles. There's great art coming out of New York City. There's great art right now at the Cleveland Museum of Arts with Husama and Infinite Mirrors. Wonderful art sparking the imagination of the city. But what we read here in Scripture is that the way that God planned it to be is that Christians, people who follow Jesus, would see themselves as introducing culture to the wider scope of people. Not us following along in what other people are doing. You're meant to introduce heaven's culture. This is who you are. This is, design, this is divine destiny or design. You're meant to introduce heaven's culture to earth. You're not meant to follow the old story of like who Cleveland is or who people are. That you wake up, you pay taxes, and then you die. How tired is that story? Brokenness, brokenness, brokenness. No, you're meant to introduce hope or inject hope into the culture around you. Christ in you at the center, the world peripheral to your plan A. The church's plan A. That's what we read here. That when, when God looks to shape culture, when God looks to shift something in the judicial system, in the school system, in politics, he doesn't look to the wider culture. He looks to Christians. You're meant to shape culture, not follow it. You're meant to stick out like a sore thumb. You're meant to stick out like a sore thumb. There's something in you that you carry that brings life to people around you. That brings joy to people around you. He says that every name, out of every name that's been invoked, out of, think about how many names there have been. Couples having a baby soon. What are you naming your baby? Lincoln. You know, every baby has a name. You ever thought about that? Out of all of, how many people are on the planet right now? Seven billion? Seven, seven billion? Does anybody really know? <laughs> and all of them have a name. And all of them have a name. Think about it. Think about everybody who's ever lived. All had a name. I will call you Sharon. I will call you Nicole. You are Sarah. You know, everyone's had a name. Paul is saying, out of every name that's ever been spoken, uttered, put into the atmosphere, there is no name higher than the name of Jesus. Think about influence for a second. Do you know who the top four Twitter people are right now? How many followers they have? Do you know? Katy Perry. You know how many followers Katy Perry has on Twitter? 106 million followers. You know who else? Justin Bieber. He has 104 million followers. You know who's third? Barack Obama. He's got like 96 million followers. 
A short, in fourth place, Rihanna. Come on. And then Tay-Tay. Tay-Tay is fifth. What Paul is saying is that influence out of every name that's ever been invoked, famous or infamous, only Jesus' name has all authority. Only Jesus' name. Think about it. A little seed goes. Jesus hits the scene in the, in the Roman government is oppressive and the Roman emperor says, I got to get rid of him. He dies on a wooden cross and the Roman empire is like, hurrah, Roman government forever. And 300 years later, this little seed comes up and the Roman emperor 300 years later is bowing his knee to the name of Jesus. Think about it. Katy Perry, 106 million followers on Twitter. Jesus changed the world with 12 Twitter followers. 12. This little seed. Just this little seed. All authority. Because he's at the center. Christ is at the center of all things. He fills everything, everywhere, everyone with his presence. Why don't you join me in standing? We'll close this thing out. We want to create a space where you can receive, where you can be in Jesus.